I'm really grateful for my banking experience, but what I also learned about my banking experience, it's at small percentage, right? The practical side of money is way smaller than the energetics. The energy around money, your belief system around money, hands down will always trump the practical, always. Abundance is an inside job and your intuition is the key to unlocking it all. Hello and welcome, I'm Rebecca Davison, founder of the Intuitive Life Academy, the leading place to develop your intuitive and psychic gifts. As an ascension guide and light leader, I'm committed to bringing you all the latest tools, developments and the neuroscience available when it comes to the art of effortless manifestation. This show is for light workers and for those who identify that your intuition is your greatest guide to bring you happiness, expansion and money. With my corporate banking background, you'll receive practical advice along with all the energetic tools that you can apply in your life today. So if this resonates with you, let's jump into the world of abundance and learn what it takes to experience true freedom. Hello and welcome folks, this is Rebecca, this is the Intuitive Abundance Podcast, you're listening to episode 30. If you haven't been following in sequence, last week I started my money story and I spoke about my childhood and the biggest factors there I think influencing my money story would be shifting childhood home and going into a family property that had been in our family for quite a few generations and seeing my parents step into some pretty big shoes to fill in regards to doing that property up and bringing it back to life. The other one was going to boarding school and being in an environment of learning pretty quickly what comparison was and I guess as I got older being very aware of coming from a different background than perhaps other people in terms of generational wealth and the fact that I had opportunities like going to boarding school and realizing that not everybody had those opportunities. So today in my money story part two, I really want to talk about finishing school and then starting to work and more of my career beyond my business. So well, prior to my business, shall we say. At school, one of the energies that really got activated for me was actually the rebel, right? The rebel archetype, mainly because I discovered that I don't like being told what to do, but also because, you know, as the rebel gets activated, the opposite of that is needing to be in your own authority. And that's what it is that I really needed to learn to do. As a rebel, I actually kind of got kicked out of the boarding house at school. I got asked to leave because I wasn't abiding by their rules. I was doing things like skipping dinner and going down to the local mall to talk to boys and wanting to explore things like that outside of standard school 
practices, which was crazy, right? Because I know as a day girl, that was just no big deal. But when you're in a boarding house, and especially at that point in time as well, you know, like the boarding school that I went to has changed considerably, especially since the time that I was there. I know the girls now have a lot more freedom and a lot more autonomy, but we didn't really have that as teenagers. It did oftentimes feel like you were in a little bit of a prison. But again, perception is reality, is it not? This rebel archetype really got activated at school. And it was interesting leaving school and then going, okay, what am I going to do now? I remember spending some time back at our family property, trying to figure some stuff out, like what am I going to do? And ironically, one of the things that I ended up doing was hairdressing. I don't know. And I would imagine this was brought about can't even remember now, but I would imagine this was brought about through some concept of wanting to experience something that I perceived to be glamorous. So I probably watched a show or kind of thought, oh, it's connected to fashion and that's interesting or it's exciting or it's glamorous. So, you know, I remember getting um, what happened at the study that I did, like the hairdressing program. What you did is you did the hairdressing program for three days and then on two days you went and did your apprenticeship. And I remember having an apprenticeship at Pizzazz Hair Studio. People in Christchurch will probably recognize that name. Going and doing my apprentice there. Now, how old was I? I was 18 going on 19. So I would have been 19 years old when I spent a year doing hair dressing. It was an experience in and of itself. Lots of fun, definitely a lot of that glamour, doing catwalk shows, what you know, like in the world of modeling, a lot of really amazing people, creative people, outlandish people, you know, out of the box people that I met through that first year of hairdressing. This was back again, early 1990s. So I was placed where I was the first time I'd ever met somebody because at that point in time, it wasn't a huge amount of awareness and it was quite intimidating, right? To be in a circumstance where I remember one of the clients we had, he was HIV positive and it wasn't really well known at that point in time, especially not in little old parochial Christchurch. So I was exposed to a lot of different, you know, a lot of partying. You know, those people definitely know how to party. Hairdressers are incredible like that, right? They know how to hold their liquor. A lot of incredible parties, a lot of uh, clubs, a lot of bars, a lot of drinking, a lot of fun. But also too, you know, my first experience really of being paid. Now I got paid under the table, which means that it didn't go through the books. I got paid cash, right? I got paid, I think it was $60 or so $120 for the week, $60 a day, was it? Or maybe it was every two weeks. Anyway, it was a fortune at the time. And I remember, you know, I would just get paid cash out of the till and it was a fortune for me at the time. Like my rent back then was $60 a week. So being paid $120 was a fortune, especially, you know, cash in my hot little hand, as opposed to a check, which you can't spend immediately. And as you can imagine, a lot of that money actually ended up going straight down my throat because it would be walking out the door. And what would happen, of course, on a Thursday night, on a Friday night, we would go out. I remember one time going out with 
another one of the hairdressers who worked there, you know, pretty much spending all that money in one night. And that was a big thing for me. I can remember feeling, again, a little ashamed about that because I was like, that's not so clever. That's not... That's not great, a wise thing to do, and feeling a little bit like I'd been irresponsible. Especially you can imagine coming from this girl who pretty much wrote down every transaction to getting paid in cash and then spending it all pretty much in one night. It seemed pretty reckless, and I also identified that I wasn't very much in my authority about that. And you know, some of the things that we do, and we're like, I made a mistake with my money, I did something that was foolish. You know, in that circumstance, I was definitely doing it to impress him. Like, I've got this cash, I'll spend it on you, I'm your friend, right? Which was just nonsense, really. But again, you know, like you live and learn, you do those things, you make those mistakes, you just have to make amends and atone and take it on the chin. Recognize that it does become part of your money stories. What we want to do is take responsibility for that and clear up the energy around it, clear up the emotion around it. So further on down the track from that, after I left hairdressing, I did a couple of odd jobs and eventually you know, I started doing interior design. I did another course. I, you know, I couldn't do hairdressing because I actually had really bad reaction to the chemicals, which I probably, if I'd had a little bit of foresight, I would have been able to see from recognizing that I already got eczema rather from, from other things like the lanolin that I spoke about in the last podcast. Couldn't, it wasn't sustainable. In fact, it was so bad. I remember my hands would be so cracked and dry and painful. I couldn't even open my front door. So as a career choice, it was just like, no, this isn't for you. So from there, I actually ended up doing an interior design course and wanted to go overseas with that. And I ended up working in a restaurant called Blue June Cuisine, which I have so many fond memories of. I still have a lot of good friends from that place. Big shout out to... Murray, who is still with us, and Annabelle, who's passed on. They were amazing to work for in a really good family-based environment. We really had each other's backs. And again, even there, I think I, you know, I can't even remember now. I think it was like $8.50 or something. But back then, right, again, in the early 90s, that was a fortune, right? Like I had money coming out the wazoo. I, you know, my rent was like $60 and I had all this money like I was saving money on that to go overseas that was incredible to have that opportunity to work in a really great environment amazing food if you ever went to Blue Jean Cuisine it was just so yummy I'd like to think that the service was good hard to say when you were one of the waitresses but it was it was a great place it had a great vibe it had an awesome environment it had great atmosphere it had great music it had great people I really loved it but again another money experience and by that time I was probably a little bit more settled and was actually able to save money and I had a goal at that point too which was to go overseas which I did I worked at Blue Jean Cuisine on and off for well part-time and then more full-time at, at, at certain places for about three years and then I left to go overseas at the end of uh, beginning of uh, 97 went overseas and again that amazing experience of not actually having a job and having all this freedom which was incredible but also too being very conscious of spending money and when you're traveling it's easy to spend a lot of money really quickly really easily 
So that experience in and of itself, and still even at that time, you know, I would ask dad to kind of look after my money to manage it a little bit for me so he could transfer money from my bank account onto my, you know, my credit card because I was using that mostly because of course that was prior to internet banking. It was even prior to the internet really. You know, I hadn't sent an email, although that did happen very shortly thereafter. Very first time I ever sent an email was when I was traveling, when I was overseas. Again, these different experiences of starting to find your feet with money didn't really have a lot of wealth consciousness though. I didn't really go, okay, I want to earn this kind of money. I wasn't really even at that point. I was just grateful to have a job and to be paying my bills and to be saving money. Like to me, that was like winning the lottery. It was incredible. Loved it. You know, further on, obviously traveling overseas. And again, that was an amazing experience. I ended up going to London and in London actually got a job as a waitress, which was actually very profitable, actually, because I worked in a restaurant where they had a service charge. So the busier it got, the more you got paid because it was a standard 15% on every bill. It was part of the, you know, the contract I guess for eating there it was just a given I'm not sure if they still do that in London I presume that they still do like it's just you know I guess in the states where a gratuity is I think it's you know you have a little bit it's a bit more arbitrary in the respect that you get to choose whether it's 10 percent 15 20 percent for there it was just a standard charge and it was 15 percent so you know I remember one day it was so busy I can remember going home with over 100 pounds and that was amazing right because I'm pretty sure rent was was about 150 pounds a week now the circumstances around that again this is back in the late 1990s but I was also sharing a room with two other people and I'm sure if you have done your overseas experiences it's often referred to here in New Zealand when you go overseas you get a working visa you go often to a place like London or Europe as it used to be it's a little bit different now and post well pre during pandemic times but you used to get your work visa you used to go overseas you used to go traveling you used to go to Europe you used to have your overseas experience so part of that in a way to save money was to share a room a lot of people I know did that you know unless you had a really high paying job and again I guess I had a little bit of a mentality there that you know London is a big city it's not so easy to find a job I actually ended up working in a design store, Designers Guild. If you know, Trisha Guild, uh, it's on the King's Road. So that was an amazing experience too. It was very luxurious, a lot of beautiful homewares. Obviously, if you know anything about Trisha Guild, you'll know all about her fabric, her use of color, amazing designer in that respect. So it was like working at a luxury high-end store, but also being paid very small amount of money it really was I think we got paid 275 pounds a week it was really low amount you could earn commission if you sold furniture like if you sold a sofa you might earn 50 quid or something like that but I can't remember the actual details but the amount we were actually making was really small you know I still managed to save money but that's because I didn't go out that much and if we did go out it was often to the local pub and I remember you know it would be 10 quid and again back then it was pretty much times three so that would be 30 dollars and that was you know that was that was a big night out that was like you know 
two pints of cider and something to eat for five quid because a pint of cider was like two pounds fifty or something being very aware then like of wanting to do and we still I still had an amazing time and went and did a lot of things but again I wanted to save money see this mentality that I already had at this point in time of being concerned about money noticing money aware of money kind of stressing a little bit about money it did take up quite a lot of my attention because again, it was connected to a sense of safety. So living in London and having that experience and then eventually coming back home and I literally just saw, I was like, what am I going to do now? And I started working in a bank. I saw an advertisement in the newspaper. I went to the, the human resources company. I can't remember the word off the top of my head, but the company which you know was was doing all the hiring for the bank. I did an aptitude test or whatever it is, and eventually got a job as a teller. I remember feeling like again I'd won the lottery because they sent us up to Auckland for two weeks to be trained up. We spent you know like a two weeks in a hotel, two weeks, one week. But anyway, and you know we had meal vouchers. It felt like oh my goodness, this is incredible, and just to learn what it was to be a teller, right? At that point in time too, right? To be the person who is, and I may have that wrong, maybe it was to be a banking advisor, but anyway, it was part of the experience. I worked in banking for 13 years. So I started as a bank teller and then I moved into being a convenience banking advisor. So I was actually helping people to get registered for internet banking because that had just come out. And then beyond that, I started working as a customer service representative, I think it was, a CSR, because they had all these abbreviations. And then I worked as a banking advisor. So a banking advisor did everything from selling you an investment portfolio, which was kind of like managed funds, to doing life insurance, to making sure you had house car contents insurance, to helping you get a house loan, like a mortgage. I did that, I think maybe for three or four years. And I was actually going to leave the bank. I'd actually come out of, you know, I'd been married during this period of time and we had broken up and it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. It was really, it was really traumatizing. It was just, you know, I felt I'd made such a big mistake and we shouldn't have got married in the first place. And you know, I won't go into those details to protect his privacy, but you know, it was the opposite end of the spectrum in regards to me being a banker. Like I, there was a lot of stuff around money that actually made me feel quite unsafe, which was a big contributor to me stepping out of that relationship. And again, a showing me probably my own sense of safety around money and can I create it and can I trust myself to create it? And often too, which is really interesting, the banking industry often attracts a lot of people who have some pretty interesting money stories, you know, because we, you kind of end up there being the person who has to learn about money, right? And on the day I actually handed in my notice as a banking advisor, because I was like, I'm really unhappy. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to go back to London. And the day I handed my notice in, one of the you know, and the department person came down from private bank, which was pretty exclusive part of the bank because it's for high net worth clients, it's for people who have money. Most of the bank is oriented, no matter whether you are an agribusiness or business or personal, it's oriented towards lending people money. So there's this kind of niche 
part of this private bank area, which was for people who already had money, a lot of celebrities, entrepreneurs, surgeons, people like that. And the head of that department came down and said, have I got a deal for you? And it was a pretty spectacular deal. You know, at that time as a banking advisor, I think I was earning 30000 like $30,000 a year, New Zealand dollars. And he came down from up above like a knight in shining armor and made me an offer, which was $50,000. So it was a $20,000 pay increase. So at that point in time in my life, that was pretty substantial. And this was to be an analyst. So to work alongside a private banker and to really be their support person to do their audits, to make sure their checklists were done on their loan files, to do everything from rolling over term deposits, making sure people weren't overdrawn, putting in trades for foreign exchange, managing portfolios, doing buys, doing sales, etc. It was a, what wasn't just attractive about it of obviously the pay increase, which was also the opportunity to learn more information. And what I loved about private bank was starting to learn about how people who had money saw money differently. They had a completely different relationship to it. You know, I'd gone from being a banking advisor and literally the day before I left like the last day as a banking advisor. And this used to happen a lot, folks. So if you ever go and see your bank manager, banking advisor, whatever you call them, please be nice to them, right? Like it is a stressful job. And I remember the day before, and it was in the afternoon, it's a lot of headspace, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of focus, there's always a lot of pressure because you're often having to reach targets and things like that. And I remember this woman came in and bless her. And again, because you can feel often too that you're just being so mean, but it's credit policy as well. You have to be able to say, yes, I've asked this question, I've ticked this box. So therefore I've met the criteria for this client to be extended more money. Client came in and she was like, I need some money to buy nappies for my baby. And of course, naturally the first thing you do is bring up the person's bank account details. And I could see that the day before she'd been at the casino, the casino, the casino. And this kind of thing was pretty common actually folks, right? Like if there's any kind of trauma or addiction, kind of common for people to act out in a certain way that's not necessarily to their benefit. They're just trying to heal their own wounding. So unfortunately, in that circumstance, it's not going to pass credit policy. So I had to explain to her and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I can't extend you an overdraft facility. You know, if you really need money for nappies for your baby, you actually have to go and speak to WINS, as it's called here, which is um, work and income. So to get some form of welfare. This woman went off, right? Screaming and yelling and swearing at me and calling me a B-I-T-C-H and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, you're just, your soul's being crushed. You're already stressed. You're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you're not able to give her money because, of course, the bank has a policy around it, helping that person to understand when they're just having a completely emotional reaction. You know, super hard work, folks, super stressful, super soul destroying for me personally, you know, to be in that environment where I couldn't help this person 
not because I didn't want to, but because, and again, that's what the bank would say to us, would you lend this person money yourself? And of course, from the way she was behaving, the answer would be no anyway, independent of whether it was me lending her money or the bank lending her money. Because often back in the day, they used to extend money really on a gut instinct. Now there is credit policy all over the place in terms of like having probably, you know, a whole page that you have to go through a checklist with to have somebody qualify for that. It's much more, you know, it's a much more analyzed process than perhaps once upon a time. So even in the circumstance, having this woman being very upset and kind of feeling like, oh my goodness, you know, the sense of sadness, being embarrassed, being ashamed, all of those emotions, watching her leave and, you know, being dissatisfied, etc., let alone having all this abuse hurled at you. And the very next day, when I started in private bank, picking up the phone and saying, hi, it's Rebecca here, or welcome to private bank, Rebecca speaking, whatever. And the client said to me, oh, Rebecca, welcome to private bank. And I was like, whoa, right? This is the client saying this to me. So going from an environment, and I really started to think about what has happened for that person that they ended up in that circumstance where they're feeling so out of control that they've spent all their money at the casino, then they're asking for me, and then they're rallying against me, seeing because the bank's often seen as the authority figure, right? and it's totally not, folks. Never, never give your power away to a banking institution or your solicitor or your banker or your accountant. Right? Stand in your power, ask the questions, even if you feel like it's silly or it's a stupid question, ask it anyway. You need to know, right? <laughs> Speaking from an ex-banker's point of view. But to that, to this gentleman standing and like, what was the difference in his life experience where he was saying to me, like totally calm, totally relaxed, obviously totally wealthy. And it's easy for the rational mind to go, oh, that person just doesn't have that opportunity or they've come from a set of circumstances which has contributed to it being that way and this other person's just more fortunate. But that was the amazing thing about working in private bank is the people there, like I said, they had a completely different relationship with money. And I found that fascinating. Now there were pros and cons to that too. So this was a really amazing opportunity for my money education. And of course, this also becomes part of my money story. So what did I learn? I mean, I learned obviously that you, and I've done a practical financial tips before. Again, I'm not an authorized financial advisor, so it's my opinion as an ex-banker, take it or leave it. And it's not financial advice. It's just my opinion. But I learned, you know, that if you increase your loan repayments, even if it's by $5 every year, that you can save yourself like tens of thousands of dollars in interest off the term of your home loan. I learned that the bank will often give credit cards to people who seemingly have no money. They'll give often a really, so it seems so arbitrary sometimes that they'll give somebody who doesn't have a lot of money a really big credit card limit and somebody who does have a lot of money quite a small credit card limit. I learned about the factors that contribute to whether you receive the amount of money that you want to borrow or not. So on the practical level, it was really interesting and fascinating and even understanding and knowing the difference about a lot of things. One of the beautiful things about working in private bank was learning about different things like foreign currency exchange. 
So when I was there, I actually bought Japanese yen, which was pretty volatile and watched it kind of bounce all over the place. And, you know, getting again, I in some ways associate it a little bit with gambling because you don't really know the outcome. You're really kind of doing it, you know, based on monitoring it, monitoring it, monitoring it. I actually ended up making $13,000 from a trade from buying New Zealand dollars into Japanese yen and then waiting for it to obviously increase and then converting it back again, which was really handy because I ended up using that money combined with the money that I'd invested as a deposit for buying a house. But again, you know, so you're learning different things. You're in a different environment, but learning the people, the people that you meet and those environments are really what is telling. They're running a different vibration. They see money differently. So what I learned was people who had money were coming from a different place. They were often relaxed about it, obviously, which is kind of natural. Often they had worked really hard for it. They had created more wealth, right? Which is, you know, an alignment with my dad. He created, he took a property that was kind of run down. He put it to a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, did up a lot of fences, built a lot of gates, brought the farm back up to a place where it was actually profitable and eventually ended up selling it and made a very healthy profit from doing that. So we had often a lot of retired farmers. We had a lot of entrepreneurs. We had quite a few celebrities. We had quite a few people who were sports people. We had people who were surgeons or, you know, they had been doing their skill to set their expertise for quite a few years and they all, you know, they all had slightly different flavors, you know, like um, some of the entrepreneurs that we worked with, they had a pretty high risk profile, right? Because they were used to taking risks. So they would be, you know, they would buy often really obscure shares and be okay with that. Quite dynamic people, right? Ready and willing to make educated decisions around money to do their research to get to a level of comfort so they could push the button and say yes they made decisions quickly powerful people right make decisions quickly they took care of their money they weren't afraid to look at it they made strategic moves right so a lot of this again was what I was exposed to on a day-to-day basis, I loved going out and meeting the clients. I remember one client in particular and going to his house and he had sold a business in the United States and he was bringing his US dollars back into New Zealand dollars. So he would watch the markets pretty consistently. Like he had, we went to his house, I think he had two or three monitors (laughs) and he was watching some of the exchange rates like second by second So, and you know, we had two monitors at work, so it was pretty impressive to see essentially somebody who was a regular client, albeit a wealthy one, but watching what the exchange rate's doing, watching what his stocks and shares are doing. And it was quite a dynamic and exciting environment to be in. You know, I guess too, if you've heard the crypto podcast, you can see 
how working in that environment leads you to having a certain level of interest in things like cryptocurrency or looking at, you know, understanding what diversification is or how we would try and tell clients when their portfolio wasn't performing very well. What was one of the catchphrases that we came up that it's outperforming on the downside, which is one of the nicest ways to tell people that, you know, you're losing money. You know, it was an amazing experience to be in that environment and to learn what I learned and learned a lot about money psychology. I remember telling a client once, a gentleman, not in private bank as a banking advisor, that his loan had been declined and it was, oh, it was awful. I felt like I'd punched him in the stomach. Like his sense of self-worth just kind of drained out of him. It was one of the most awful experiences. And then that person is literally not hearing you, even though you're trying to explain to them, okay, let's get your savings up and let's do some really good account transactions over the next month, three months and we can come visit it. But it's too late by then because that person's already made it personal. So I was learning a lot of things consciously on a practical level, but also subconsciously about how people were identifying money with their value right? Identifying money with their value. And get it, it's really easy to be relaxed about money when you have it, but that's not always the case either. I remember having, there was one client and he was making huge money, right? He was making like 20 grand a week, but he would get paid once a week as a private bank client and it would be gone in a week, Right, he, in a week. And I, I think, you know, you actually have to have some level of focus to spend $20,000 in a week. And this gentleman was doing it consistently. It was really fascinating to me, right? It was like he was being paid a lot of money, but it was almost like he couldn't hold it, right? He couldn't energetically hold it. And even in other clients, when their tax bill was due, they would ring up and they're like, I owe the IRD $30,000 tomorrow. And they wouldn't have any money in their bank account. But because they're a high net worth client, we would step in and work to create an overdraft facility for them that they could clear when the next bonus or whatever came in. But again, in my mind, I was like, wow, that's really fascinating that you're still making a lot of money, but you still don't actually know how to save it. And again, so even though you're creating wealth, you can still be not necessarily operating in great parameters around it, or you can take things for granted, or you can still have some really interesting energy around money, even if you're making a lot of it. One thing that's really common that we often see is how people make a lot of money and then they just live to their means. So their expenditure increases. So they're not actually making more money. They're kind of actually pursuing often a lifestyle. So starting to be a very aware of the stuff I was at this point in time. And I I am very grateful for my experience in the banking industry. I probably stayed about three years too long. <laughs> 10 years would have been five. I uh, fine. I was there for 13 years in all. It was a scary time. Uh, my job at private bank got disestablished and I found that really, really difficult. My ego had a real fit around that. I felt very devalued. I felt unseen and I was quite happy to complain about it. I will have to put my hand on my heart and say, 
you know, I'm not proud of the fact that I complained about it, but I felt really powerless. And also too, I didn't recognize at the time that the universe was saying, Hey, this is not for you. This is not your life purpose because I had too much fear. I was fully invested in my job. I had identified with it very strongly, right? This is what I do. I'm a private bank analyst. I was giving my power away to my job definition, my job title. Yeah. And I was, and when somebody takes that away from you, and I'm sure if anybody's ever lost their job, you will recognize those feelings of, it can really collapse your identity. And that's what I really noticed about some of the men in the bank is they really equated their value with the amount of money that they were earning. I never really earned more than I think the $50,000. I mean, I had received some bonuses over and above that. One time when I stepped in for a private banker, I made $70,000. But even looking back on that now, I kind of think, oh my goodness, you know, like I covered that person's job for, I think, two months. I'm pretty sure the starting salary for that was at least 100, maybe 110. But even though I was covering that person, I, you know, and then, you know, part of you goes, is that because you're a woman? Or why weren't you being, you know, I was doing his job but I wasn't being compensated at the same level because, and they got away with that, right? Because I was covering it. But from my perspective as well, I was like, wow, this is the most I've ever made in the bank. Looking back now, I'm just, I'm just like, wow, that is a fascinating perspective that I had at that time. (laughs) My perspective around my own value proposition in terms of what I'm able to create is completely different. It was a really interesting experience and it really was, again, another key turning point in my own money story, obviously working in a bank, all day, every day, numbers, focusing on things. We had a really good time in banking too, again, quite a big culture in the banking industry to socialize, quite a lot of drinking, quite a lot of, what did we call it, the overdraft bar on a Friday night. It was a good time, but also too, you know, there are a lot of people who stay in the banking industry for life. Definitely not one of those people. I I actually had to work through quite a bit of resentment that I had, but the resentment was me against me again, because it always is because I was the one who was choosing to stay in that environment because I didn't think that there was anything else available to me. When I was starting to make moves to leave banking, there was definitely some of that energy of, oh, you're going to lose, you know, because you get some benefits, obviously, being a banker. You get discounts on your mortgage rates. You get free accounts, things like that. There was definitely like, oh, you're going to lose all that. And I was like, again, you have to have enough vision to go, but what am I going to gain? It really, the message was you're going to leave the bank and you're going to go outside into the big wide world and you're going to die. Right, which is which is uh, not true not helpful can totally based in fear and yeah it, it but again when you are so frustrated when you are so this is not where I'm supposed to be this is not my purpose you know it's served its purpose this job you're what will happen is you'll start feeling the contraction you know the universe helped me out by disestablishing the job right in terms of helping me to get on my right path right this is not where you're supposed to be it's time for you to go it's time for you to shift I remember my job got disestablished and then I actually ended up working in business bank for a while and I had no clues 
right? Even in private bank, I totally knew how to read financial statements, profit and loss, etc. But in business, it was the next level. And I really, I struggled with that. And it was so lucky in private bank as well, because these people had money. So to lend to people who had money, you pretty much knew it was guaranteed that the loan was going to be improved. But in business banking, you know, you were pulling a lot, a lot of other mitigants often to get a loan approved. I was so out of my depth. It wasn't funny. And um, again, I saw some sketchy stuff happen in banking, which I didn't really love the way people were treated, the way people were singled out, the way people, again, often it was not like what you're doing or if you're doing your job well, it was often based on who you were. And I didn't love that either. So you know, like leaving banking finally, what I ended up doing is I went and did event management for a year. And again, what I'd actually done is I cashed in my superannuation with the bank, because again, they, they would, you would put money into a superannuation scheme and they would match it to a percentage and that percentage increased over time. I cashed that in and I had $20,000 which I used to support myself for that year while I was studying, while I went and did event management at Christchurch Polytech. And that was, I think, 2010. Yeah, 2010. Because, of course, at the end of that year, that's when the first earthquake hit. During that period of time, one really good thing that came out of banking, which I am forever grateful for, is another turning point in my money story, was buying my first home. Well, sorry, buying my second home. So the story of my my house, my second dream home house, which I have an amazing view. I love this house. It's beautiful. Was It was quite a big step up for me financially in relationship to my other property. So the market had dipped. So I sold my house for less than I would have preferred and then to move into this place. But the benefit of that, because this house was a much higher value, this property, you know, the property market had dipped. So the value of the house that I'm in now had also dipped. So it actually worked out in my favor. But, you know, I borrowed a huge whack of cash to be able to move into this house. And that experience of getting the loan and having it all come to fruition and having it work out. It was a really amazing experience, actually, because I would go to work and I would sit at my desk and I would, you know, we had access to the internet, which was amazing. And I would bring up the website where this house that I wanted to buy was. And I would look at it pretty much every day. And I saw myself in it. But when I looked at it, it was like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over my budget. I was like, I love this place, but there's just no way that I can afford to buy it. But of course, over and it sat on the market for months, I'm like talking eight months, which is highly unusual for a property. You know, even if the market is slow to still list it over that period of time, And it just sat there and sat there. It was almost like it was waiting for me. That's what I convinced myself of in the end. What I actually did during that period of time, I do have a YouTube video on this if you want to watch it in its entirety, but it was pretty cool because I actually asked my grandfather to help me find a property. And I had been looking at others in the area, been looking to purchase a property, you know, out near the beach. And I'd seen another property and... I was really interested in it, actually. But the real estate agent, I said to her, if you know, if you get any offers, can you call me? She never did. I was kind of annoyed about that. But then again, this house 
presented itself and I looked at it and looked at it and honestly six months I was looking at this house every day sat on the market sat on the market sat on the market eventually I decided to come and have a look at it and I'm like oh wow this feels really nice I bring my folks out and my dad walks onto the balcony and goes oh this is a good place for a gin and tonic and it was literally like in my head I could hear the sold sound you know like sold with the, uh, the auction hammer coming down And then um, I started, you know, taking the action steps in regards to like, okay, well, what would would I have to do to actually have this to come to fruition? First of all, you know, how much is the house worth? And, you know, where is the market at? How much could I sell my place for? What kind of mortgage would I need? What kind of loan would I need? You know, how much do I need to bridge the gap, so to speak? And started working it all out. And obviously being in a bank is a really great place to do that because you're doing it all day, every day. And you can ask people pretty quickly for information to be able to discover it. Yeah, obviously got the lending, worked out the price. I got a a building inspection. I got a valuation, made an offer. There was some work that needed to be done on the balcony. So we did a little bit of negotiation. Obviously the the house had been sitting on the market for a wee while. So it was accepted. I still remember where I was walking down the street near Hills Road when I got the phone call to say the house is yours. It was December... 2008 I think so I moved in 2009 I believe because yeah I was here for a year so it must have been maybe 2009 2010 because I was here for a year before the first earthquake which is a whole other story but again um, if you're not aware folks we had some pretty massive earthquakes here in Christchurch New Zealand in 2010 2011 a whole bunch of aftershocks to go with that Yeah, so that experience of buying the house and the elation of seeing something that you literally looked at every day and wanted to create, wanted to manifest, and it actually becoming a reality. Very, very special time in my life. I'm incredibly grateful. I've lived in this house now for, well, over 10 years. It has been a healing sanctuary to a lot of people. I've had quite a few roommates over the years and obviously, you know, love, 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 love living here. It has been really, really special. And the beautiful thing about that process, talking about my grandfather, I asked him in spirit, right? He'd passed over and I asked him in spirit to help me to find a property. The beautiful thing was my grandfather was a carpenter. So, you know, this house survived the earthquakes really well. It's a sheet metal roof and wooden building. So I really felt that he had guided and supported me in that decision because my grandparents actually lived very close by. So they're familiar with the neighborhood, etc. But the beautiful part of the story, the confirmation and the most magical part for me was the very first box. Like when I moved in, the very first box that I opened on the very top of the box was a picture of my grandfather. So the very first box that I opened, opened it up, there's a picture of my grandfather and it was almost like confirmation from him that he'd heard my prayer, that he had listened, that he had responded and he was saying, you're in the right place. So that was really, really beautiful experience. I remember taking his picture up and holding it up to the window and saying to him, do you like the view, granddad? 
all these pieces, right? Like buying your own home. Like I felt like a real adult, right? Like I'm stepping into my my big girl shoes and being an adult, the experience of working and banking and, and having a really good understanding of not just the practical side of money or how to invest money or what your risk profile is or, you know, making sure that your portfolio is balanced, all of those kind of practical things, but also the money psychology, noticing how people evaluated their value with money, all this unspoken emotive things that were happening for people in relationship to their money. Noticing the people that I did work with in private bank who were very wealthy, how relaxed, how strategic, how impartial they were, how they saw money as a tool, how they had power over money, right? They were the master of money. Money was not, they weren't beholden to money. Money was their partner. Money was a tool. Money was their equal. Money was, you know, they were the master of their money. It was not the other way around. I've seen it a lot of times where people feel, you know, when they're running scarcity or contraction, they feel like money has power over them, that it's hard to make, that it's hard to hold, that it's hard to keep. Again, all of those as we discover our belief systems and your belief system can be changed. If you're willing to do the work of accessing your subconscious and shifting things, then you can create a belief system that supports you to be the person who, you know, to be the most powerful version of yourself each and every day. And Again, when you're willing to take strategic risks with money, when you're willing to be the person who's showing up and being powerful in relationship to your money, money responds to that. So I really love that I've had that financial background, I guess in some respects, because it gives you credibility, so you know what you're talking about, and experience, obviously, which is the credibility, but just noticing energetically and emotionally the difference in regards to how wealthy people respond to their money, what they do, what they say, how they deal with their money, and how people who feel disempowered, what they say, what they do, and how they show up. So it was a really interesting education, and I'm very grateful for it. But again, another big piece of my money story. So in the next podcast, I will look forward to sharing more information about starting my business. It's quite a fun story in the respect that I jumped, like I literally jumped into my business. I was so ready to jump too, and I had so much faith and so much belief in my business, and that's why I am still here eight years later, having done my business full-time for the last eight years. It really, it, it never fails to amaze me. If you believe in something, you can make it happen. So I'm so excited to to share that in part three of this podcast series on my money story. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my banking experiences. You can see obviously too how these experiences have shaped my narrative in terms of becoming an intuitive coach that helps people with abundance right? It's the universe leaves clues and it plants seeds and it gives you the information that you need in order to be able to help other people. And again, I'm really grateful for my banking experience, but what I also learned about my banking experience, it's at small percentage, right? The practical side of money is way smaller than the energetics. The energy around money, your belief system around money hands down will always trump the practical, always. If you're running a belief system, 
that is supportive to I'm a wealthy person, I'm in my power, it's safe for me to be wealthy, that always will hand over fist trump the practical side. I've just seen it over and over and over and over again, which is now why I help people with their belief system around money, about their power proposition, rather than the fact that I'm still a banker. I'll look forward to sharing more about that in the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday break. This is going to come out over the Christmas period, New Year. So I hope you're enjoying yourselves. I hope you are leaning into what your money story is and how it has shaped and created your narrative and you're looking at is this supporting me and the evolution of what I'm looking to create what I currently believe now what needs to shift we'll dive into that a little bit more on the next podcast all right folks lots of love bye bye Thank you for joining the Intuitive Abundance podcast today. If you've enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe and write us a review so we can help other people positively impact their lives. I would really love that. If you're ready to activate the energy of abundance within you, then be sure to go to www.intuitivelifeacademy.com to sign up for our abundance activation process. Until next time, here's to your ever-increasing freedom. All my love. Bye for now.